Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, Denver Community Church, this is Dan Cummings, worship and tech pastor here at DCC. And I want to make all of our podcast listeners aware of an interesting opportunity. As we all know, the past two years of the pandemic have caused almost all of us to re-examine our relationship to God, to our faith communities, and to church as a whole. For some, it may have been a time of reconnection to the divine, while for others, it was a season of disorientation and questions. As we move into this next season together, We want to get a clear picture of where all of the subgroups within our community fall on this spectrum so we can meet you there and engage in it together. This includes those who engage with DCC primarily through this podcast. If that's you and you're willing to share a bit with us, please email John Gettings at jgettings at denverchurch.org with the subject line podcast listener. That's J-G-E-T-T-I-N-G-S at denverchurch.org. Uh, with the subject line podcast listener. We look forward to hearing from you. And now back to the teaching podcast. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. I haven't been up here in a while. My name is Dave Newhousel. I'm one of the pastors here at DCC, the pastor of mobilization, in fact, which means I help uh, to help you all be the people of Christ, the, the hands and feet of Christ in our world. Uh, and I'm also the director of Project Renew. And Project Renew is the justice and peacemaking initiative at DCC, where we house all of our efforts, uh, the giving we do, the mobilization, the the serving, the loving, and also the the learning around what it means to be a peacemaker in the world. Um, I picked up this mug on the way out, and it says, I love my cat. (laughs) I don't have a cat. Um, I don't know why I wanted to tell you that. uh, and I have the privilege of finishing up our series. Uh, we've been um, talking about the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous uh, set of teachings that Jesus did, recorded in the Gospels. Uh, and each one uh, was broken into these mini benedictions that we call Beatitudes. And we're on the ninth and final one uh, today. If you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 5 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And it says very simply, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We've talked over the last several weeks about how um, each one of these beatitudes is like an ethic. It's a, it's a way of being in the world. It's Jesus' exhortation to his disciples to saying, uh, this is what it means to stand uh, as, as people of the kingdom in the world. And it's good, it's right that you would do it this way. One of my favorite authors and uh, someone who I just really, really admire is a man named uh, Father Greg Boyle. And he says this about the Beatitudes, and it's really helped me. He says, scripture scholars contend that the original language of the Beatitudes should not be rendered as blessed are the single-hearted 
or blessed are the peacemakers, and on and on and on, as we've talked about, or blessed are those who struggle for justice. But greater precision in translation would say, you're, you're in the right place if you're single-hearted or working for peace. The Beatitudes is not spirituality so much, after all. It's a geography. It tells us where to stand. I, I like the idea of it being, the Beatitudes are a way of being in the world. And so as Greg Boyle says, it, it depends on how we're standing and who we're standing with. This idea of peacemaking obviously is close to my heart because of the work that I do, I do and I've done here at DCC for 13 years, I think. Is, um, I care. I care deeply about the people of God um, being and embodying the good news in the world, which means being people who are mending the divides, who are coming into hard situations and, and bringing something different, a third way to the hardships of our world. And I think when we talk about peace... We talk about peace. In, in English language, in Western culture, we, it connotes for us a lot of different ideas. Oftentimes, the most basic thing that comes up for us is the absence of conflict, right? And I've said that before here. Right now, that's something we really need in our world, isn't it? We'd like for there to be peace in the world. But in the Hebrew mind and in the mind of Jesus, being a Jew, um, peace means so much more than the absence of conflict. It's far fuller than that. The root word that comes from peace um, comes from this idea of wholeness or completion. It means to prosper. When things are right or when things are just, they're whole. That, that word is shalom, to be whole, to be put together, prospering. So when Jesus talks about peace, which he does all throughout his ministry, he's speaking about that collective wholeness being a reality in the world. Not just the absence of conflict, but actually thriving, abundance, things being set the way they were intended to be. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's speaking about that kind of wholeness, that kind of thriving. And then he says something here. He says, they will be called the children of God. And I, and I really was curious, why, why was that so important? And so as I prepared for this, I've been thinking about this concept of why is he calling us the children of God? And um, we all know that when it comes to this idea of shalom, that's not the reality we live in, Right? Obviously, we live in a world that's broken. We can feel that brokenness. And if we ask ourselves the question, why are things so broken? You know, we're Christians. This is church. We grew up in the church, potentially. And if you, if you ask yourself the question, why are things broken? We often go to the idea of sin, right? And we think about, well, because of sin. Sin enters the world. It's broken. It ripples into every aspect of life, systemic and personal and relational. Um, that reality of sin is infecting everything. That's the simple answer. And the work that I've done over the last decade or more, um, I work with a lot of social workers and nonprofit leaders who are asking questions about really difficult issues about how we change broken things, how we change broken systems, or how we take um, ailments or things that people are experiencing, hardships, and we want to make them better. And so there's a concept within this peacemaking work that we talk about going upstream on problems. Everyone heard this concept? We're going upstream on problems? Uh, there are a lot of people helpers here, so I, I imagine you would. But when you, the concept of moving upstream comes from really, kind of a really weird analogy. But the analogy is that you, a person came to a river, and as they came to the river, they began to realize that there were these vulnerable children floating in the river, and they were close to drowning. And so, of course, if any one of us saw a kid floating down a river and they were drowning, you would jump in and save them, right? Right? 
Yes, you would jump in and save them. Right, thank you. Um, and you might be able to save one, but then as soon as you save one, you realize there's another one coming. And then there's another one coming. And if you're all alone, maybe you can call some friends and say, come help me save these children, right? Uh, and, and, but at some point, you're going you're gonna to wear yourself out or there's not enough people to help. And so this is an analogy of a lot of the problems we face in our, in our world, even in this neighborhood. There's a lot of people experiencing homelessness in this neighborhood. There's a lot of unemployment in our midst, right? That's something that's on the rise. Um, there's struggles that we all face. And, and when we think about those struggles, we can take each one and we can go, rather than sitting around looking at the symptom of unemployment, or the symptom of someone experiencing homelessness, or child mortality, or illiteracy, we often spend a lot of resources thinking about the symptoms, but we actually might do better to go upstream and figure out who's throwing children into the river, right? Why are there children floating in the river? But oftentimes it seems so simple, but in the chaos of wanting to help, we oftentimes don't go upstream. What's interesting is this, this is a great analogy and it can really help us think about systemic realities of problems that we face. And it helps us get to the root of a problem. And we think about brokenness in our culture. We think about why peace doesn't thrive, why things aren't whole, I think we would do well to ask ourselves the question, why don't we go upstream on that problem? What, how do we go upstream from sin? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, back to the beginning of the Bible. See, oftentimes when we think about sin, the reality is that sin is really a symptom. Sin is the outworking the, the kind of sins we often talk about when we think about sin, we think about individual problems or issues, like I was talking about unemployment or homelessness. We think about um, greed. We think about the way that we treat people. It becomes a very relational reality. But the reality is that those sins, as we talk about them, are the brokenness, are oftentimes the symptoms. They're not the root. In Genesis chapter 3, we're told um, about the woman. And if you know the beginning of the Bible, in the first two, two chapters, we're told about the man and the woman. And and really, the whole first two chapters of the Bible are all about God creating man and woman in his image. And he goes to great, the author goes into great deal to talk about how humankind are the crown of God's creation. And then chapter 3, which is the one we tend to emphasize more, we talk about brokenness. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're told about a snake. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 through 5. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The snake went on and said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the serpent started with a lie. He took something God had said and he twisted it, but the woman actually caught him. She said, no, 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 we're allowed to eat from, we can eat from some of the trees. In fact, what the serpent is twisting is that the exhortation from God to Adam and Eve, the first humans, was you can eat from all the trees, just not this one much like a parent looking out for them. The serpent tried to twist their words, and then when the woman called him on it, he said, well, 
you, you won't, certainly you won't die if you eat from this. And he says something that is a lie about God. He said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the serpent implants a lie into her perception, this woman's perception of who God is. He, he inserts a lie. He takes God's words and he twists them. And so any good psychologist would tell you or us that um, if a young child with a parent picks up any sense that a, child, that a parent is insecure or a parent needs something from a child, they need them to be, act or be a certain way, that it disrupts the security of that child and that relationship, that, that attachment and that attunement of that parent with that child. And when that happens at a very young age, in an age of innocence, that can be really disruptive and have long-term effects. Um, the movie quotes, our, our, our movie illustrations are always tricky with sermons, but I do love Christopher Nolan, and his film Inception is all about this concept. If you could plant an idea in someone's head in such a way that, it, that would, they would obsess about it, that it could change the course of history, this idea of Inception. I think what's upstream from sin, as we often think about it, is a lie. What's upstream from all of our, our, our outworking that is negative and the brokenness in our world is a lie, a lie about who God is and who we are. That's what's upstream on our problems. Um, and so and very much like a child who receives a message, for most of us, our, our, our outworkings that are broken, the way that we conceive of ourselves, the way to conceive of others, the way to conceive of our gods, all come back to an inceptive idea inside of us that we, we're not connected, that we're not secure in God, that we're not enough. And this is why I think this passage is said, we think, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, is a clue as to what's really going on here. You see, maybe more rightly said is that um, many scholars suggest that these beatitudes are much like benedictions. The things that we do at the end of the service, where we say to you, blessed are you, and then we tell you something. We tell you something to send you out. And that word blessed comes from this, the benediction comes from this idea of goodness. And we want to send you with a positive reality. We want to send you with the truth about yourself. And so I think if we're going to understand this passage, I want to do a benediction right now. And right here today, I want to maybe, in the weird part of the service, in the middle of the service, I want to give you a benediction because I think it's really important for this passage. Because that lie that is upstream from all of our brokenness needs to be disrupted. So, perhaps the most important benediction you could receive at any time, my friends, you are God's children. You are the crown of all creation. You, right here, right now. You are the very pinnacle of God's imagining. God is so pleased with who you are. He's so pleased. You are God's delight. There is nothing you can do to be separated from your belovedness. You have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. And as God's beloved, you are most yourself and most alive 
when you see and extend this belovedness to others. Amen? That's who you are. That is the counter to the lie that we've been told that somehow has gotten so insidiously wrapped into the very essence of who we are. And it is the center of all of our brokenness and outworkings. Uh, Henry Nouwen says this about this journey of becoming the beloved. He says, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, which is what we're just trying to do just then, we are faced with the call to become who we are. Becoming the beloved is the great spiritual journey we have to make. Many people, some people even say, this is the great task of the spiritual life, is going on the journey to become the beloved. Because it's one thing to hear those words, isn't it? It's one thing to, to hear that truth. But it takes a lifetime often to internalize those truths, to counter those truths, for allow those truths to become incepted inside of us. Uh, C.S. Lewis takes this idea further, and he talks about the idea of our own our belovedness and how we're made in the image of God in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory. And he says this, it is with awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and we work and we marry and we snub and exploit. That's a British word for kiss, snub, by the way. <laughs> it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, but it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. The task of a child, the task of any well-adjusted child, is to love and to be loved. And as God's children has said here, that our central task in life is to love and to be loved by God. Um, today is Palm Sunday, where this is the first day of Holy Week. And so in the traditional church calendar, this is the Sunday in which we commemorate the week that leads to Christ's death and resurrection. And we'll celebrate that next week. Um, but on this day, it's an interesting day. It's an interesting day because this is the day that would Jesus re-entered Jerusalem, and it begins this week that we call Holy Week. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 36. Palm Sunday was the day that, that at the end of Jesus' ministry, many people who were his disciples and followers would say this was the height of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has performed many miracles over the course of three years. He's told stories. He's chastised religious leaders. And from the, the perspective of the, the, the rulers and the powerful, Jesus was a huge annoyance. But for the, for the common person, this weird, peculiar rabbi who was doing miraculous things and spoke with such wisdom was on the rise. In fact, as he came into Jerusalem for this, this festival, uh, 
they, we call it Palm Sunday because the people who had gathered around actually took palms. And in a way of doing that, they would lay them on the sides of the road as a king were entering the city. It was a royal designation of honor and homage to a king. And so we see here in, in Luke chapter 19, this is what unfolds. Speaking of Jesus in verse 36, it says, As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and joy and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they're calling him a king. They're saying, this one is like God. And Jesus said, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then in verse 41, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus entered the city not on a royal horse, but on a donkey. And he was sending a message because he said this must be fulfilled to fulfill prophecy, is that he would come in on a donkey humbly, not as a royal king in, in, uh, in glory, but as a humble servant. And as he came in, we're told that Jesus weeps because he looks at Jerusalem, ironically, the word that means the city of peace. And he says, you, even you, if you knew the things that made for peace. You see, peace in that day, as they, which was very much the absence of conflict, was this idea of power and strength being demonstrated by people who were religious people and political powers. And Jesus' ministry was, was completely characterized by a different way, wasn't it? A humble path, a way of, a way of love, a way of forgiveness, a way of not, not separating people based on status and hierarchies, but inviting all and including everyone. That's why he was popular with the people. And Jesus saw a city that longed for peace, and Jesus said, you have no idea how to do this. He can see and weep, realizing that even thinking that there would be a great procession for him of the king, it was a cue to him that they didn't really understand what he was doing. You see... Throughout Jesus' ministry, a couple different instances were told that uh, kids wanted to be around Jesus, and they tried to gather around him, young children. And oftentimes, it just wasn't proper, it wasn't dignified, and so his disciples or others would try to hold the children back. We're, we're familiar with these stories, right? And Jesus would say, let the kids come unto me. In fact, and he, he said it would, he would touch them all on the head before he would leave. And he used that, those instances on two occasions to say, Actually, unless we become like these, we cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is the humility, it is the simplicity, it is the wonder of a child that actually characterizes the life of a follower of Jesus. It's that what it means to inherit the kingdom, is to have that kind of simplicity, that wonder, and that belovedness. Jesus celebrated that. One time, I think this is probably nine or ten years ago, I was uh, um, at one point, Network Coffee House is just two blocks to the south here, and Network's one of our key partners. And Network Ministries, we talk about a lot, is a hospitality house for people experiencing homelessness. And there's a lot of places where you can get a meal in a city, 
Uh, and, and, and there's, you know, where people can go to different feedings of churches and nonprofits in the area, the rescue mission. There are even places where you can lay your head down. And thankfully, due to the city's investments and shelters, we have more shelters than we ever had. And there's bedrooms for people. But there's not a lot of living rooms. There's not a lot of places where you can just be at ease. And so Network Coffee House was started 40 years ago as a place of peace. In fact, out in the sidewalk, my favorite designation is that written with someone's fingers decades ago in the sidewalk, it says, the living room of Christ. And it's just a place where people experiencing homelessness primarily, or anyone, all of us, could go and, and get a cup of coffee. You don't have to pay anything for that coffee. You can even get a shower. Every once in a while, there's some food. But it's a place to be at ease. It's like a living room. It's a place to rest. And so um, there are various shift workers. There might even be some here this morning uh, that, that lead shifts at Network. And they're volunteers. Um, and so eight or nine years ago, I did this for a couple of years. And at the time, my son, Cashin, was just four years old. And honestly, I think um, Network is generally a really safe place. But I had never brought my son there before. But we had a staff meeting. And I remember a, a conflict with my wife. Um, with her schedule, not a conflict, but a, her schedule. <laughs> She's like, you take the kid. No, um, I had my kid with me, uh, my, my oldest son, Cashin, and Cashin was a really, really happy young kid, I think. Um, at, at three or four years old in my mind, I remember walking up the stairs at Network and having there for the first time, and being the first, you know, a, a young parent, having my son with me, I remember walking up the stairs, and the, the legendary friend and mentor of mine, John Hicks, um, who was very sarcastic, um, he saw me and I saw him. And I don't think he'd ever met my son before. And he stopped in his tracks and he put his hands on his knees and he looked down at him and he said, now that is a well-loved kid. And no one had ever said that to me before. As a parent, that felt amazing um, to think someone saw your kid and they thought, that's a well-loved kid. And that phrase stuck with me because, you know, when I think back, the reason I think I remember that is I think of, uh, of my son Cashin at that age, just wide-eyed and full of wonder, kind of bumbling around, you know, keep it, trying to keep his feet under him. But he was in a new place, and so his eyes were open, and he was open to what could be. And because I hope and believe that he felt secure and he felt loved, he was just with his dad, and his dad was taking him to a new place. I think that picture of being a well-loved kid is a picture of what it means to be a peacemaker who's open, who feels love, and because they feel secure in that love, they're willing to, to offer that freely to other people. Because they're secure in the image of God, and it, and for all of us as disciples, if we're secure of the image of God that we believe ourselves to be, then we so readily can extend that to others. That when we see people hurting, we're willing to step in. We're willing to be those who mend the divides. We're willing to be to those who are curious and interested. We're willing to get close. Like Father Greg Boyle says, I think we're standing in the right place when we're making cheap peace because that's what God's children do. That's what God's children do. A couple weeks ago, I was in my car driving, and probably like a lot of you, I'm interested in what's going on in, with the war in Ukraine. And I'm frustrated. Who's frustrated? Just heartbroken. And I'm like listening to a podcast, some reporter that's embedded outside Kiev, and I'm hearing about these horrible stories 
of atrocity. And honestly, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed because someone who cares about peacemaking, when I'm not feeling at this level, like maybe you do like I do, there's nothing that I can do. Like I feel powerless. I feel like, or even the things, small things that I can do, I can give money here or I can like advocate here in some small way. It just feels so small and meaningless based on the, the overwhelming nature of this atrocity. And I promised myself a long time ago that I said, David, if I'm going to commit myself to peacemaking, I need to remember that this always begins with me. And as that cynicism began to creep into my car, I often do this. I'm listening to a podcast and I push pause and I start preaching to myself because when I feel like a disillusionment or a sense of cynicism, I begin to talk myself out of it. And I remember that moment so poignantly because being in my car, I was so frustrated with what was going on. I felt so powerless and I had to remind myself, and I want to remind you that this this morning, when we feel overwhelmed by the brokenness we see around us, maybe the people we love or the people close to us, or something's going on in your neighborhood, and you don't know what to do because you feel overwhelmed, you know, there's, and, and you're just like, I'm not that person who's a politician who has all this power. I'm not this person who has all this money, and there's nothing, you know, they could give money, and I don't have enough money that they, you know, what I can give is so small to what they can give. Or I'm not the president, or I don't work for the military. Or I'm not a legislature, and on and on and on. There's always those things that fill our mind how we feel powerless as peacemakers. But I want to remind you, every single one of us has a part to play as God's children. We all have a part to play. And it doesn't always feel big. It doesn't always feel glamorous. But there's always a place for us to make peace. And I felt that overwhelm. And I want you to know that. I want you to believe that this morning. As God's children... Blessed are those who are peacemakers, because this is what you were made to do. And so even if it has nothing to do with Ukraine, in your closest relationships with your neighbor, with your coworkers, there's always a divide that needs mending. And we're never, we're never powerless. There's always a part for us to play. My friend Frank tells me often, he says, you meet different people, and we all tell ourselves stories about the different people we meet. This person's powerful, this person's wealthy, this person's really good looking. And oftentimes, based on the story we tell ourselves about that person, we also tell uh, an associative story about what they might be carrying, about um, what's going on. And this, this, my friend Frank pastored for 25 years, and he said, you know, Dave, what I found over and over again as a pastor, no matter who you're talking to, no matter who, what you told yourself about them, or who they are, if you scratch just a little bit below the surface, you're going to find great pain. You're going to find great pain. And he says, without a doubt, that's everyone I know. Never underestimate the weight that your friend or your neighbor is carrying, no matter what story you tell yourself about them. Because all of us, every single one of us, are just like my young son. We're longing to be well-loved. Amen? Let's pray. God, I think of so many people here and whatever they might have brought in with them this morning, thinking about just scratching just below the surface what pain they might be carrying. As I look in people's eyes and, and think about that this morning, I pray that in whatever people are carrying, God, that you would meet them in that pain, in that need. And I pray also this morning, God, as we end this time, that 
Um, if we're discouraged or feeling overwhelmed or we're feeling powerless, I pray that would not be so, God. But I pray that you would prompt us of the people in our lives, maybe the people we've been sitting next to that are also carrying a debt, carrying a weight. And God, may we be overwhelmed with wonder at the magnificence of who you've made us to be, your extravagant love for us, and your extravagant love for others. It's in the strong name of Jesus I pray. Amen.